Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Barbara Ehrenreich, the author of the new book, Natural Causes, An Epidemic of Wellness, The Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. The health and wellness crazes that have led to increased gym memberships, calorie counting, jokes about gluten and mindfulness, and much else seem to now be a permanent part of American society. But Ehrenreich, the author of such books as Nickel and Dimed, as well as a prolific essayist, looks askance at many of these trends and believes society is refusing to come face to face with the realities of death and aging. Barbara Ehrenreich joins me now from New York City. Barbara, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm delighted. Delighted? Are you just saying that or you're actually delighted? Uh, I'm trying to work myself into being delighted. Okay. All right. <laughs> no, well, I really, I am really pleased to be talking to you, Isaac. So tell me, this is a cliched question, but I think it will lead us in, in good directions. Why did you decide to write this book now? Yeah, it, it was a mistake since it's not about Trump. I wasn't going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are two things that motivate me to write a whole book as opposed to a little essay. One is usually anger, outrage at something I perceive as an injustice or um, an illusion. And and the the other thing that motivates me is curiosity. You know, once I get going on a subject, I really want to keep tracking it down. So this book starts with some concerns about uh, our health care uh, and what it's actually doing to us, and moves on to the subject to go into a deeper level to look at ourselves and our, our chances of living forever, or for at least 20 years more than we should live. So what is what is your problem with, let's just start with healthcare. What, what exactly... What exactly is your complaint about the American healthcare system, and not not the sort of things we often read about about you know uh, HMOs or too much uh, you know whatever the whatever the political complaint about healthcare is not enough people having coverage, but but you you have a different critique. Yeah, I think in addition to yeah. uh, covering those issues of you know clear class and racial injustice in access to care. We should look at the care we get. And what I began to find once I got to be about 50 is that most of my interactions with the medical system had to do with doctors and clinics demanding that I go through certain kinds of tests. And I thought, okay, this is the preventive care that keeps America, you know, that accounts for American longevity, although our longevity, longevity no longer compares that well with other advanced countries. But anyway, uh, I went along with it. And then I began to come, become more and more skeptical about what these tests uh, were achieving and whether they added anything to our longevity. And test after test, and I'm talking mammograms and colonoscopies, bone density scans, the results were not reassuring. And Isaac, I'll tell you exactly how I started doing this. I was very, it was very simple. Take the procedure, say bone density scan. Now you're going to Google that with the word controversy or the phrase, quote, evidence-based. And you'll find all the problems and all the issues. And I would I would do this for everything that came along, and uh, determined rationally that the, these things were not worth my time. Well, so uh, the one of the critiques of of the sort of massive amounts of testing in the American healthcare system is that it leads to higher healthcare costs, and America has very high healthcare costs for a industrialized Western democracy. 
But my, my question is, it seems to me that the critique in your book is not just that we're spending lots of money on these things, but it's how it's, and this fits into a lot of your earlier work, it's sort of how it's, um, how it affects our mindset and our own thinking about aging and death. Oh, definitely. I mean, the sort of uh, cultural, cultural idea is that uh, aging does not have to be unpleasant in any way. You can age, quote, successfully if you do everything that you're told. And that dying itself does not have to be postponed further and further and further away if, again, you adhere to all the rules of diet, exercise, uh, medical care, etc., and that's the cultural illusion, I would say. We do not control our own health completely. Yeah, there's some obvious things you can do, like not smoking, not, um, I don't even know what the current dietary do's and don'ts are, so I won't mention those. But, you know, there, there, there's always a set of things, do and do's and don'ts, uh, to regulate this. And if you're not conforming to that, then you will not age successfully. But, I mean, we, we all agree people are living longer. We all have people in our lives who are in their 80s or 90s who are doing amazing things now, you know, still traveling or, you know, exercising and, you know, doing do seem more active. We have a larger and larger percentage of the population living longer. What, what, do, you, what do you think all that is about? I mean, do you really think that there's nothing to be said for the increased focus people are putting on their health and their wellness and keeping their body fit? I think that needs to be examined. You know, we have to look at that statistically. Uh, yes, we have a lot of o older people who can afford this is the various things that might well support a healthy old age, like, say, a gym membership. But if you look, take it case by case, like mammograms, again, there's a, a debate, which has, I think, been really been won by this time, by the side saying that it, all that screening mammography does not do anything. In fact, what it can do, and this goes for prostate screening too, is if they find something that seems wrong, then they can go on to the biopsy. They may go on to surgery and drastic uh, procedures like chemotherapy. Now, when you're in your 70s and 80s, you might want to weigh whether those are things you want to spend the time that remains to you doing. My answer is no. Because? Oh, no, because I have other things to do, <laughs> you know? You know, as I put it in the book, um, partly this seemed to start for me, you know, the kind of, um, you know, trade-off decision. Uh, do I want to go sit in a windowless doctor's office and waiting room, or should I finish, meet my, meet, meet my deadline, or go for a walk? It always came down uh, to the latter, or at least meeting the deadline first. Well, I, I guess I'm interested in the way this book fits into previous things you've written. Um, you seem to always have kind of a distaste for, let's say, self-help type literature and for this idea that we can kind of improve ourselves. And, and it seems like you connect it to a certain kind of American creed that you find distasteful. Is that is that a fair summary? Hmm, well, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I would say... That implicit in a lot of these things is a, a strong level of narcissism. Focus on yourself. Uh, you know, you, you can you know, do self-care. 
try to follow the rules, the, the current rules for being healthy, and that it is all about controlling what's within the perimeter of your skin, really. Um, it's not about actually doing anything in the world or with other people. And what do you think the manifestations of that are um, sort of beyond what you're talking about specifically in this book? I mean, the the sort of self-involvement and the f- focus on self. I mean, it seems like your larger critique is that that has some role in, in the way American society and even politics are kind of constructed. This kind of narcissism. I, I think you could answer that better than I can, Isaac. Well, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just asking because I've read a lot of your stuff in preparation for this interview, and that seems like one of the through lines to me. Yeah, I, I have to say I am fairly disgusted by a lot of the pipe psychology, pop psychology. I'm sorry, uh, you know, illusions that have been propagated in recent years. I read a whole book. I wrote a whole book countering positive thinking, which I suppose makes me some kind of real, you know, Grinch. But again, it's something that doesn't is not going to affect, say, the outcome of a disease or the outcome of a war or anything else. So in this book, I take on some of those other things that suggest you have a great deal of control over your body and your mind, but actually don't deliver much. And one of them is mindfulness. Um, I guess what it boils down to is the idea that you should meditate or Think of something different for a few minutes every day, uh, and a, that a cure created by Silicon Valley's promotion of their mindfulness apps. And I'm always dubious about these things. Because you feel like they're being sold to people to make money, or you feel like what makes you so dubious? You know, I'm sure you have people in your life, I have people in my life who, who meditate and say it's very helpful. It's not something I think I could ever do or would be interested in doing. But uh, a lot of people say it's very helpful and it offers them a certain kind of solace. What, what What's your response to that? That's fine. I mean, I have people I'm close to who do it too. Uh, and uh, I support them in, in doing it. Uh, but I, I think what is lacking in so many of our lives is a real connection with other people, a connection with something that is overwhelmingly important to us, and it involves us in some sort of community. Uh, All this um, stuff about prolonging your life more and more is entirely individual. And that's not bad. You know, I'm, I'm not against individualism. But it sort of takes you away often from the things that might meaningfully uh and in, in keep you going in life. Like, I, I work. I continue to work. I'm 76. And if I don't have time for some of this medical nonsense, it's because I'm working or enjoying friends and family or something else that's really an important way for me to spend the years that remain to me or the months or weeks. Let me let you mentioned smoking. I want to ask you about something you write about smoking in the book. Is what you say. As more affluent people gave up the habit, the war on smoking, which was always presented as an entirely benevolent effort, began to look like a war on the working class. Can you expand upon that a little bit more? I think most people, um, probably most people listening to this podcast, think that the so-called war on smoking saved many lives and was a real sort of step forward in um, a, a progressive step forward in uh, American society. Well, here I want to. Uh 
I refer you hmm. to an essay written by one uh, by June Thunderstorm. That's her name. Thunderstorm. Uh, <laughs> Thunderstorm. All right. All right, and nom de plume. But anyway, as a working class woman, she wrote a wonderful essay, which was going into the best essays of the year book, uh, about just this. Uh, For example, I'll give you one vivid example. You can't smoke indoors anymore. So there goes the working class bar. Where are these working class bars now? Uh, it's, It's not the same to gather without smoking. Uh, workers at work like smoking breaks. Why do they like smoking breaks? Because the rest of the time they're running around, you know, stocking shelves, doing what they're told, serving meals. When you smoke, that's the working class kind of self-care. You could say, well, it's nonsense. It's a bad thing to do. But that's, you know, when you have nothing else, it can calm you very quickly. So I, I think... It's very tragic when I see uh, employees gathered outside a workplace, like a big box store um, or uh, a office building, trying to smoke in the wind and the rain because that's the only place they can go. But, I mean, wouldn't the answer here be to sort of create hopefully a society where working class people or people who work difficult jobs can find some degree of um camaraderie and companionship on the job around something that doesn't, you know, kill, yeah, lot, kill yeah. lots of people no, every of year. Co- and- of course, I totally agree with you. This is a desperate measure in the face of overwhelming stress. I mean, look how many pe- people now work, they're sort of on call. You don't even have a regular shift to show up for. You wait and get the call from an employer to show up. So you don't know for day to day what you're going to be earning. So how can you make any plans? How can you do anything? That is as stressful, I would say, as being a, you know, a laboratory animal getting uh, shocks at irregular times. That's the working conditions uh, that we've created for so many Americans, white collar as well as blue collar. Right. You know, it seemed that you presented smoking a little bit as as something along with sort of the health and wellness craze that's kind of wealthier Americans were becoming um, fixed on and it become sort of, you know, the the hip way of going about your life. And that this was sort of being forced down the throats of less fortunate people in the United States. But it seems to me with, with something like smoking, which we know does have such horrific health effects and also things like secondhand smoke, which have horrific health effects on people who are not just the ones smoking, that sort of the the push from the top, you know, which could be categorized as kind of elitist or, or whatever you want to say, was in fact something that, you know, I mean, I don't have the, the, the statistics at my fingertips, but I imagine a lot fewer working class people are dying from lung cancer now. And that seems like a good thing. Are really a lot of people, are there more deaths from lung, lung cancer among uh, the working class? I've been looking at statistics, and I, oh, uh, I said there would be less. I assume now, since since fewer people. I, are I just uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's one of the elevated things. You know, the white working class in America has been experiencing a quite astounding rise in mortality. Yeah, but as far as we know, the causes are things like opiates, opioids. Um, which are mixed with alcohol, and suicide. 
these are the diseases of despair, as the economist who brought all this to light uh, said. So, you know, if you were my boss and you were just giving me that little talk about um, smoking, yeah, I would say, damn it, make life easier. Stop, you know, with this on-call, uh, just-in-time uh, business of working, you know, when you get to work. Uh, stop with these um, fairly murderous forms, I would say, of surveillance of workers as they work. I mean, there's just so many things I would say to you if you were my boss. Right. I, I, I've got the CDC numbers here. It seems like between 2003 and 2012, the last decade available, that lung cancer deaths decreased by all genders and, and ethnic groups, uh, racial groups. But but I see what you're saying about, you know, uh, we know that there's been a huge rise among working class people and death, deaths from opioids and something else. I, I guess, again, I would just say it seems like the answer would be to to find a way in society that people don't feel left behind where at the same time they aren't doing things that are unhealthy for them. Oh, I'm with you. And I, I'm, a, you know, anytime you want to start organizing for that society, just call me right away. Uh, I'm all for that. But right now, a lot of people feel pretty desperate. And let me just mention the opioid epidemic, although this is not in my book or anything. But what makes me very mad about all the attention to the opioid epidemic is how little attention there is to pain. We have a pain epidemic in America. Where does that come from? Because if you work particularly in a manual labor kind of job, by the time you're 45 or 50, your back is out, your knees are going, your rotator cuffs are going, everything hurts. You want to keep doing that job? You need to take opioids. I think that's horrible. And I would rather work on, you know, diminishing the pain of so many people's labor. I want to change gears just a little bit here, which is that uh, I, oh, I should also say you have a PhD in cellular immunology uh, as well as your other um, other things on your writing resume. Um, let me let me just turn change gears here a little bit, which is you wrote one of the first critical things I can remember reading at least on Oprah in the New York Times. And the Oprah for President uh, Boomlet has kind of uh, passed a little bit, I think, although it could come up again. I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is um, thinking about a figure like Oprah now and that a figure like her is being talked about for political office, and we, we currently have a reality star, television star as the president. Just for people who haven't read it, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your critique of Oprah and what she represents and what you make of it manifesting itself in politics. Well, actually, it was only a tweet. <laughs> no, you wrote that, a piece in the New York Times. I read it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, Sorry. No, uh, it's all right. No, I, I would much prefer Oprah to our current president and to many of the other possibilities. But what she has represented is this kind of self-help, self-improvement approach to life. And that's why I actually quarreled with her once on TV. Very bad for my career as an author. But, uh, you know, she was just urging poor women to change their themselves and their attitudes so that they could get what they wanted. And I said, it's not that easy. You know, if you're living in a single wide trailer with a husband and three children and no access to, you know, fresh produce or something, 
That's that's a that's a situation that you can't overcome by positive thinking or changing your attitude. Barbara Ehrenreich is the author of Natural Causes, an Epidemic of Wellness, The Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. Barbara, thank you so much for coming on the program. Well, thanks for talking to me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for additional help from Emery's Eller in Manhattan. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more about the show. Thanks so much for listening.